Chapter Three of Child Life in Colonial Days by Alice Morse Earle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Schools and School Life. First mark whereof schools were erected and what the founders did intend and then do thou thy study direct for to obtain unto that end doubtless this was all their meaning to have their country founded with all points of honest learning whereof the public wheel had need from the last trumpet by r crowley fifteen fifty no greater contrast of conditions could exist than between the school life of what we love to call the good old times and that of the far better times of to-day poor small and uncomfortable schoolhouses scant furnishings few and uninteresting books tiresome and indifferent methods of teaching great severity of discipline were the accompaniments of school days until this century yet with all these disadvantages children obtained an education for an education was warmly desired no difficulties could chill that deep-lying longing for learning child said one noble new england mother of the olden days if god make thee a good christian and a good scholar tis all thy mother ever asked for thee not only did parents strive for the education of their children but the colonies assisted by commanding the building and maintaining of a school in each town where there was a sufficient number of families and scholars rhode island was the only new england colony that did not compel the building of schoolhouses and the education of children so determined was massachusetts to have schools that in sixteen thirty six only six years after the settlement of boston the general court which was composed of representatives from every settlement in the bay colony and which was the same as our house of representatives to-day gave over half the annual income of the entire colony to establish the school which two years later became harvard college this event should be remembered it is distinguished in history as the first time any body of people in any country ever gave through its representatives its own money to found a place of education in virginia schoolhouses were few for over a century governor berkeley an obstinate and narrow-minded englishman wrote home to england in sixteen seventy i thank god there are in virginia no free schools nor printing 
and I hope we shall not have, for learning hath brought disobedience and heresy into the world. Unquote. Some Virginia gentlemen did not agree with him, however, and gave money to try to establish free schools for poor children. A far greater hindrance to the establishment of schools than the governor's stupid opposition was the fact that there was no town or village life in Virginia. The houses and plantations were scattered. Previous to the year 1700, Jamestown was the only Virginia town, and it was but a petty settlement. Williamsburg was not even laid out. A few seaports had been planned, but had not been built. Hence the children of wealthy planters were taught by private tutors at home or were sent to school in England. Occasionally, as years passed on, there might be found in Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia, what was called an old field school, the uniting of a few neighbors to hire a teacher, too often a poor one, like the hedge teachers of Europe, for a short term of teaching in a shabby building placed on an old exhausted tobacco field. In one of these old field schools kept by Hobby, Sexton, Pedagogue, and the most conceited man in three parishes, George Washington obtained most of his education. A daily ride on horseback for a year to a similar school ten miles away, and for another year a row morning and night, even in roughest weather across the river to a Fredericksburg teacher, ended his school career when he was thirteen. But he had then made a big pile of neatly written manuscript school books, which may now be seen in the library at Washington, and he had acquired a passionate longing to be educated, which accompanied him through life. An advisive narrative sent from America to the Bishop of London toward the end of the seventeenth century says, This lack of schools in Virginia is a consequence of their scattered planting. It renders a very numerous generation of Christian children born in Virginia, who naturally are of beautiful and comely persons, and generally of more ingenious spirits than those in England, unserviceable for any great employment in church or state. This statement was not wholly correct, for though Virginians were not usually fitted to be parsons, they certainly proved suited to state and government. When the war of the Revolution broke out, the noblest number of great statesmen, orators, and generals, who certainly were men of genius, if not of conventional school education, came from southern provinces. These brilliant Virginians were strong evidence and proof of what the great orator Patrick Henry called in his singular pronunciation, natural parts. 
which he declared was of more account than all the book learning on the earth different climates and surroundings soon bring out different traits in the same race of people the warm climate and fruitful soil in southern colonies developed from english stock an easy living race who needed the great stimulus and noble excitement of the revolution to exhibit the highest qualities of brain the puritan minister cotton mather said in sixteen eighty five in a sermon before the governor and council in massachusetts the youth in this country are very sharp and early ripe in their capacities thus speedily had keen new england air and hard new england life developed these characteristic new england traits new england at that time was controlled both in public and private life by puritan ministers who felt as one of them said that unless school and college flourish church and state cannot live the ministers were accredited guardians of the schools and when boston chose five school inspectors to visit the latin school with the ministers many of the latter were highly incensed and increased mather refused to go with these lay visitors by a law of massachusetts passed in sixteen forty seven it was ordered that every town of fifty families should provide a school where children could be taught to read and write while every town of one hundred householders was required to have a grammar school in the connecticut code of laws of sixteen fifty were the same orders these schools were public but were not free they were supported at the expense of the parents in sixteen forty four the town of salem ordered that a note to be published the next lecture day that such as have children to be kept at school would bring in their names and what they will give for a whole year and also that if any poor body hath children or a child to be put to school and not able to pay for their schooling that the town will pay it by a rate lists of children were made out in towns and if the parents were well-to-do they had to pay whether their children attended school or not land was sometimes set aside to support partly the school it was called the school meadows or school fields and was let out for an income to help pay the teacher this was a grant made on the same principle that grants were made to physicians tanners and other useful persons not to establish free education at a later date lotteries were a favorite method of raising money for schools it was not until about the time of the revolution that the modern signification of the word free a school paid for entirely by general town taxes could be applied to the public schools of most massachusetts towns 
and when the schools of boston were made free that community stood alone for its liberality not only in america but in the world the pay was given in any of the inconvenient exchanges which had to pass as money at that time in wampum beaver skins indian corn wheat peas beans or any country product known as truck it is told of a salem school that one scholar was always seated at the window to study and also to hail passers-by and endeavor to sell to them the accumulation of corn vegetables etc which had been given in payment to the teacher the logs for the great fireplace were furnished by the parents or guardians of the scholars as part of the pay for schooling and an important part it was in the northern colonies in the bitter winter in the poorly built schoolhouses some schoolmasters indignant at the carelessness of parents who failed to send the expected load of wood early in the winter banished the unfortunate child of the tardy parent to the coldest corner of the schoolroom the town of windsor connecticut voted that the committee be empowered to exclude any scholar that shall not carry his share of wood for the use of the said school in seventeen thirty six west hartford ordered every child barred from the fire whose parents had not sent wood the school laws of the state of massachusetts framed in seventeen eighty nine crystallized all the principles practices and hopes that had been developed by a hundred and fifty years of school life the standard set by these laws was decidedly lower than those of colonial days where a permanent english school had been imperative six months schooling a year might be permitted to take its place where every town of a hundred families had had a grammar school in which boys could be fitted for the university only towns of two hundred families were compelled to have such schools thus the open path to the university was closed to a hundred and twenty massachusetts towns judge thomas holm composed in grammarless rhyme in sixteen ninety six a true relation of the flourishing state of philadelphia in it he says here are schools of diverse sorts to which our youth daily resorts good women who do very well bring little ones to read and spell which fits them for writing and then here's men to bring them to their pen and to instruct and make them quick in all sorts of arithmetic these statements were scarcely carried out in fact in pennsylvania educational advantages were few and among some classes education was sorely hampered the quakers did not encourage absolute illiteracy but they thought knowledge of the three r's was enough they distinctly disapproved of any extended scholarship as it fostered undue pride and provoked idleness the germans were worse 
their own historians the calvinists and lutheran preachers schlatter and muhlenberg are authority there were among them a few schools of low grade but the introduction of the public school system among the germans was resisted by indignation meetings and litigations the tunkers degenerated so that they did not desire a membership of educated persons and would have liked to destroy all books but religious ones it was said by these german settlers that schooling made boys lazy and dissatisfied on the farms and that religion would suffer by too much learning as bayard taylor puts it in his pennsylvania farmer book learning gets the upper hand and work is slow and slack and they that come long after us will find things gone to rack school teachers in the middle and southern colonies were frequently found in degraded circumstances many of them were redemptioners and exported convicts i have frequently noted such newspaper advertisements as this from the maryland gazette ran away a servant man who followed the occupation of a schoolmaster much given to drinking and gambling so universal was drunkenness among schoolmasters that a chorus of colonial jaring-grinders might sing in goldsmith's words let schoolmasters puzzle their brains with grammar and nonsense and learning good liquor i stoutly maintain gives genius a better discerning scotland furnished the best and the largest number of schoolmasters to the colonies the first pedagogue of new amsterdam was one adam rowlandson and he had a checkered career his name appears with frequency on the court records of the little town both as plaintiff and defendant he was as active in slandering his neighbors as they were in slandering him though as miss van vechten observes it is hard to see what fiction worse than truth could have been invented about him in spite of the fact that people did not speak well of him he married well but his misdemeanors continued and he was finally sentenced to be flogged we may contrast the legal records of this gentleman's shortcomings with his duties as set forth in his commission one of which was to set others a good example as becometh a devout pious and worthy counsellor of the sick church clerk precentor and schoolmaster some of the contracts under which teachers were hired still exist one for the teacher at the dutch settlement of flatbush long island in sixteen eighty two is very full in detail and we learn much of the old-time school from it a bell was rung to call the scholars together at eight o'clock in the morning the school closed for recess at eleven opened again at one closed at four 
all sessions began and closed with prayer on wednesdays and saturdays the children were taught the questions and answers in the catechism and the common prayers the master was paid usually in wheat or corn for a speller or reader three guilders a quarter for a writer four guilders he had many other duties to perform besides teaching the children he rung the church bell on sunday read the bible at service in church and led in the singing sometimes he read the sermon he provided water for baptisms bread and wine for communion and in fact performed all the duties now done by a sexton including sweeping out the church he delivered invitations to funerals and carried messages sometimes he dug the graves and often he visited and comforted the sick full descriptions exist of the first country schoolhouses in pennsylvania and new york they were universally made of logs some had a rough puncheon floor others a dirt floor which readily ground into dust two or three inches thick that unruly pupils would purposely stir up in clouds to annoy the masters and disturb the school the bark roof was a little higher at one side that the rain might drain off usually the teacher sat in the middle of the room and pegs were thrust between the logs around the walls three or four feet from the ground boards were laid on these pegs at these rude desks sat the older scholars with their backs to the teacher younger scholars sat on blocks or benches of logs until this century many schoolhouses did not have glass set in the small windows but newspapers or white papers greased with lard were fastened in the rude sashes or in holes cut in the wall and let in a dim light at one end or in the middle a cat and clay chimney furnished a fireplace when the first rough log cabin was replaced by a better schoolhouse the hexagonal shape so beloved in those states for meeting-houses was chosen and occasionally built in stone a picture of one still standing and still used as a schoolhouse in raritan new jersey is here shown it retains its old shelf desks till a few years ago in a halting way schools in america followed the customs of english schools the potation penny or the drinking was collected in schools in the colonies in england a considerable sum was often gathered for this treat at the end of the term but the pennies were doled out more slowly in american schools young joseph lloyd of the family of lloyd's neck on long island in the year sixteen ninety three paid out a shilling and sixpence to the mistress for feast and wine a century later in a school in new hampshire the children diligently saved the wood ashes in the big fireplace 
and sold them to a neighboring potash works for their treat they had ample funds to buy rum raisins and gingerbread for all who came to the treat including the ministers and deacons it was of this school doubtless attended largely by scotch-irish children that the teacher recorded that the boys even the youngest wore leather aprons while many of the girls took snuff another old english custom the barring out occasionally was known here especially in pennsylvania the furnishing of the schoolrooms was meagre there were no blackboards no maps seldom was there a pair of globes though mr mcmaster asserts that pencils were never used even in the early years of our federal life his statement is certainly a mistake faber's pencils were made as early as seventeen sixty one peter joliet advertised lead pencils for sale in new york in seventeen eighty six with indian rubbers and as early as seventeen forty they were offered among booksellers wares in boston for three pence apiece both black and red lead judge sewell had one perhaps it was not our common lead pencil of to-day in seventeen seventy one we find the patriot henry lawrence writing thus to his daughter martha his dearest patsy when she was about twelve years old i have recollected your request for a pair of globes therefore i have wrote to mr grubb to ship a pair of the best eighteen inch with caps and a book of directions and to add a case of neat instruments and one dozen middleton's best pencils marked m l when you are measuring the surface of the globe remember you are to cut a part in it and think of a plum pudding and other domestic duties your father henry lawrence still lead pencils were not in common use even in city schools till this century the manuscript arithmetics or sum books which i have seen were always done in ink many a country boy grew to manhood without ever seeing a lead pencil in country schools even till the middle of this century copy books were made of foolscap paper carefully sewed into book shape and were ruled by hand for this children used lead plummets instead of pencils these plummets were made of lead melted and cast in wooden moulds cut out by the ever-ready jackknife and were then tied by a hempen string to the ruler these plummets were usually shaped like a tomahawk and carefully whittled and trimmed to a sharp edge slightly varied shapes were a carpenter's or a woodcutter's axe also there were cannon battledores and cylinders paper was scarce and too highly prized for children to waste it was a great burden even to ministers to get what paper they needed for their sermons and they frequently acquired microscopic handwriting for economy's sake 
to the forest the scholars turned for the ever-plentiful birch-bark which formed a delightful substitute to cipher on instead of paper among the thrifty scotch-irish settlers in new hampshire and the planters in maine sets of arithmetic rules were copied by each child on birch-bark and made a substantial textbook rolls of birch-bark resembling in shape the parchment rolls of the egyptians and lead plummets seem too ancient in appearance to have been commonly employed in schools within a century in this country it has been asserted that school slates were not used till this century noah webster says distinctly in a letter written about the schools of his childhood that before the revolution and for some years after no slates were used in common schools s town attending school in belchertown massachusetts in seventeen eighty five says that slates were unknown i have seen but a single reference to them in america that is in such an ingenious schoolboy's letter i will quote it in full to mr cornelius tenbrook attention albany stamford the thirteenth day of october seventeen fifty two honored father these few lines come to let you know that i am in a good state of health and i hope this may find you also i have found all the things in my trunk but i must have a pair of shoes and mamma please to send me some chestnuts and some walnuts you please to send me a slate and some pencils and please to send me some smoked beef and for bringing my trunk three shillings nine pence and for a pair of shoes nine shillings you please to send me a pair of indian shoes you please to send me some dried corn my duty to father and mother and sister and to all friends i am your dutiful son john ten brook father forgot to send me my shoes in an advertisement of an english bookseller of the year seventeen thirty seven one james marshall of the bible and son at stockton are named slate pocket-books slates and slate pens the first slates were frameless and had a hole pierced at one side on which a pencil could be hung or by which they could be suspended around the neck an old gentleman told me that he distinctly recalled the first time he ever saw slates in school the master brought in a score that had been ordered to supply his pupils he asked if any scholar had a bit of string my old gentleman thrust his hand in his pocket and confidingly brought out his best fishing line the master took it calmly cut it into twenty lengths each long enough to go around the neck of a child and permit the slate when hung on it to lie loosely in front of his chest it was a bitter blow to the boy to witness the cruel and unexpected severing of his beloved treasure and he never forgot it 
in england for centuries existed the custom of sending young children to the houses of friends relatives or people of some condition and state to be educated young boys were placed in noblemen's households to learn carving singing and good manners young girls went to learn housewifery needlework and etiquette the work of these children in what would today be deemed the duties of upper servants was given in payment for their board and tuition the housemistress gained a large corps of orderly intelligent servitors and there was no disgrace in that day in being called a servant in the time of henry the seventh these customs were universal the italian relation of england of that date is most severe upon english parents saying this putting away of young children though under the guise of having them taught good manners was done really through lack of affection through greediness the paston letters the verney papers give ample proof that children of good families were thus banished a remnant of this custom of the putting forth of children lingered in the colonies a good education could generally be obtained only in the schools in large towns or in the households of learned men the new england ministers almost universally eked out their meagre incomes by taking young lads into their homes to educate when at school in andover josiah quincy boarded with the minister the boys eight in number slept in a large chamber with four beds two boys in each the fare was ample but simple of beef pork plentiful vegetables badly baked rye and indian bread the minister had white bread as the brown bread gave him the heartburn children went if possible to the house of a kinsman an old letter in the mather papers is from mary hoare she writes to her esteemed sister mistress bridget hoare at cambridge one sentence runs thus i presume our son john is left in the hands of a stranger which may be of some evil consequence if not timely prevented and therefore i do look upon myself as concerned so far as i am capable to discern ye evil at such a distance to make my request to you to prevail with my brother to receive him into your own family that he may be under your own eye and to go to school in the same town where you cannot doubtless be destitute of a good schoolmaster which might be of singular benefit to ye child bridget hoare was the daughter of lady alice lyle the martyr and the wife of leonard hoare president of harvard college another letter similar in kindly intent is this written to henry woolcott at windsor connecticut salem april ye sixth sixteen ninety five dear brother i cannot but be much concerned for your children's disadvantage in your remote living though god bless you with a good estate which is likely to descend to them 
the want of education being the grand calamity of this country but you have always been offered no small advantages beside their diet free which i deem the least i can only renew the same offer which i have made ten years since and annually that if you please to send either of your daughters to my house they shall find they are welcome to spend the summer or a year or as long as you and they please and they will be equally welcome to my wife also i think it may be to your son's advantage to hasten down to the college while our nephew price is there and if you have anything by you that you design for their clothing let it be made up here else it will not fit for either of them to wear also for the next winter if your son be minded to retire for a month or two as many do in the dead season he may come to my house and mr noise i am sure will be very ready to oblige him with the use of his library and study he being removed to his own house next week and has a tenant in one end of it that dresses his victuals i shall not enlarge only to assure you that i shall be happy wherein i may be serviceable to my father's children and theirs i am sir your very affectionate brother and servant j Woolcott it was the custom of the wealthy planters of the island of barbados to send their children to new england usually to boston to school at one time a special school flourished there for the education of the sons of these planters several volumes of letter-books of hon hugh hall judge of the admiralty are in the possession of his descendant miss margaret seymour hall he had occasional charge of his younger brothers and sisters who were sent to boston from the barbados and his letters frequently refer to them many of these letters are to and from his grandmother madame lydia coleman the daughter of the old indian fighter captain joshua Scatow she had three husbands colonel benjamin gibbs attorney-general anthony checkley and william coleman richard hall came to boston in seventeen eighteen his older brother writes this northern air seems well calculated for richard's temperament of body and i am persuaded he never appeared so fat and sanguine while in barbados i am taking all imaginable care in placing him at our best grammar school and have desired the master and usher to treat him with the highest tenderness intimating he has a capacity to go through ye exercises and ye school and that a mild and good-natured treatment will best prevail who have promised me their particular favor to him a few months later the grandmother writes in various letters richard is well in health and minds his learning and likes our coal country better than i do i delivered richard's master mr williams twenty-five pounds cocoa i spoke with him a little before and asked him what he expected for richard's schooling 
he told me forty shillings a year as for richard since i told him i would write to his father he is more orderly and he is very hungry and has grown so much yet all his clothes is too little for him he loves his book and his play too i hired him to get a chapter of ye proverbs and give him a penny every sabbath day and promised him five shillings when he can say them all by heart i would do my duty by his soul as well as his body i hope he does consider ye many inconveniences yet will attend him if he won't be ruled he has grown a good boy and minds his school and latin and dancing he is a brisk child and grows very cute and won't wear his new silk coat yet was made for him he won't wear it every day so yet i don't know what to do with it it won't make him a jacket i would have him a good husbander but he is but a child for shoes gloves hankers and stockings they ask very dear eight shillings for a pair and richard takes no care of them i put him in mind of writing but he tells me he don't know what to write then comes richard's delightful effusion boston new england july first seventeen nineteen honored sir i would have wrote now but to tell ye truth i do not know what to write for i have not had a letter from you since captain beale and i am very sorry i can't write to you but i thought it my duty to write these few lines to you to acquaint you of my welfare and what proficiency i have made in learning since my last to you my master is very kind to me i am now in the second form am learning castellio and ovid's metamorphosis and i hope i shall be fit to go to college in two years time which i am resolved to do god willing and by your leave i shan't detain you any longer but only to give my duty to your good self and mother and love to my brothers and sisters please to give my duty to my godfather and to my uncle and aunt adamson and love to cousin henry your dutiful son richard hall soon another letter goes to the father richard wears out nigh twelve pair of shoes a year he brought twelve hankers with him and they have all been lost long ago and i have bought him three or four more at a time his way is to tie knotties at one end and beat ye boys with them and then to lose them and he cares not a bit what i will say to him mothers and guardians of the present day who have sent boys off 
to the boarding-school with ample store of neatly marked underclothing stockings and handkerchiefs and had them return at the holidays nearly bereft of underwear bearing stockings with feet existing only in outlines and possessing but two or three handkerchiefs these in dingy wads at the bottom of coat pockets and usually marked with some other scholar's name such can sympathize with poor thrifty old lady coleman when naughty richard tied his good new handkerchiefs in knots beat his companions and recklessly threw the knotted strings away End of chapter three